Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 10, starting with verse 1. The last time we saw a shift from the Apostle Paul to the Apostle Peter's ministry. And today we're going to see salvation comes to the Gentiles, kind of via a snapshot of Cornelius' family. Verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. This is the first half of the equation or the connection that's made between Cornelius and Peter that we're going to see. A little bit on the background, Caesarea is 30 miles north of Joppa. And it's the Roman capital of Judea, sometimes called Caesarea Palestine, as opposed to Caesarea Philippi, which is north of Galilee. Sometimes people get those confused. The Italian regiment could have had up to 600 soldiers, and we have a lot of the Roman records, so these things can be verified. I love the detail that Luke puts into his works. Uh, He just has so much detail to help us understand the full picture of what's going on. Cornelius was a centurion which means he was a commander of a hundred men, sort of like our NCOs in the military today. He was a military man, he was tough, and he was a battle-hardened leader. He had to have great courage and bravery. The requirements for a Roman centurion was if he was with his men and they got cut off from their supply lines and they were outnumbered and they had a fight to the death because they were being closed in on, the centurion was not supposed to make a way of escape so he could fight another battle. He was supposed to stay in the battle with his men and fight till his men could escape or they could be victorious. So these were some tough guys. But verse 4 says he was afraid. How does that figure in? Well, the answer is he was smart. He was afraid. The angel appears to him. God is sending a message to him, and he's afraid. I've had conversations with people, and some of their attitudes are kind of cavalier towards God. I remember speaking to a man who was uh, up there in years, and he just was so rebellious and hardened. And he wagged his finger and said, when I see God, I'm going to tell that. And he used an expletive. And I was like shocked. I'm thinking, don't wave that finger at me. I'm going to stand away from you because you're going to get struck any minute, right? But, you know, people have this rebellious attitude towards God, but not Cornelius. The Bible says in Proverbs 1.7, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's smart to reverence the Lord. You need to know when to be afraid, and this was the appropriate time. Cornelius is sent to Peter to understand the gospel. For the most part, angels don't preach the gospel, except in a rare occasion we see in Revelation 14, but the church is removed at that time, so that makes sense. It's an honor and a privilege to preach the gospel. Do you realize today what an honor and a privilege it is that the most precious thing in all eternity is entrusted to us to give to other people. God has given us that honor and privilege. I think of the the parable of the talents 
the parable of the minas. And whether you're, it depends on your interpretation. Some say, well, one is a picture of the gospel and one is a picture of the spiritual gifts. Regardless, in both stories, there was somebody who actually took it and hid it in the ground and did nothing with it. How sad. Didn't use it. Disregarded that honor and privilege. It's an honor and privilege to teach. I am, it's an honor for me to actually teach. I, I stand in awe of God that he's allowed me to do this. It's an honor to pray for people. You know, we, we shouldn't have the attitude, oh, I've got to pray for somebody else. We should enjoy praying for people. It's an honor to worship. I, I tell you, um, before service, I get the jitters a little bit. It's for a few minutes. But when the worship team plays, I stand in the back and I have my eyes closed and I'm just thinking about the Lord. Just that, that music just helps us to bring into the presence of the Lord. It's a wonderful thing. Fellowship, even being generous, taking what we have, the, the means that God has given us to earn a living and to be able to tithe, to be generous to people and to lead. And it's a shame to abrogate any of these things. That was Esau's downfall. For a lousy uh, pot of lentil stew, because he was hungry, he gave up his birthright. Now, I like lentils, but I wouldn't have done that. In verse 6, God pretty much through the angel points out Peter. There's, there's the guy to go to, Peter, for this specific task. And I would ask you, are you ready for the job that the Lord has for you? Are you ready, John? Are you ready if he was to call you today? Are you ready, Dave, Charlie? You know, I point to you by name. Well, when God comes to you and he calls you by name, are you going to be ready for the task that he has for you? Some may be shy, and that's okay. Some may be afraid, and that's okay. Some may feel ill-prepared, and that's fine too. Now, hopefully it's not unprepared because you're sleeping on Sunday during service. You, know? you need to wake up and pay attention because the Lord may call on you. Verse 8. You see that uh, Cornelius explains in great detail to his men what's going on. In the Greek, the word is exegasamenos. It's a Greek aorist term, which basically means in its lexical form that we get the term exegesis from. Okay? In English, what that means is that Cornelius had to explain in detail this supernatural experience to avoid confusing his servants about the bizarre detail he was going to send them on. And it kind of reminds me of where we are. There are times that the Lord has called us to do something specific, and people may not understand. And often at times, God calls us to explain ourselves or to explain to people the amazing things that the Lord has done in our life. And that's what you see here happening to Cornelius. A few points on Cornelius. Number one, he was a good man. The Bible says that he was devout. He feared God. He gave alms or he gave charitable gifts and he prayed. And in some cases, unbelievers have a better testimony, have better behavior, unfortunately, uh, an example than some believers do. And sometimes, and I, I've used this before, we all know somebody that's not saved, but is such a moral person that we say, boy, wouldn't it be great for the king if, if that person would just get saved, right? The second thing about Cornelius is he was good. He was upstanding, and he was religious. But he was not saved because of that. You have to understand that. These things did not save him. Salvation is not predicated on good works or seeking. It's predicated on believing the gospel, period. The third thing is, the good news is, if anyone is seeking God, he will allow himself to be found by them. 
read a few uh, one-line verses here. Jeremiah 29, 13. I think I have this one on my answer machine. God says, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Isaiah 55, 6. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And Hebrews 11:6 tells us that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, right? We're all welcome to come to him. John 3:16 is one of the most um, is, is sort of the moniker of Christianity, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. In the Greek, the word um, that whosoever should believe in him is actually hinapas ha pistuon. And what that means literally is that everyone and all who believe will be, will not perish, but will be, you know, have everlasting life. So that means everyone. Sometimes we preach a message that we have to check our hearts. But this morning, the message is that no matter what you've done in your life, if you seek him and you repent, he'll, you'll, you'll be found by him and he'll forgive you and he'll give you everlasting life. Sometimes people say, well, you sinners, you, you Christians are always talking about sin, sin, sin. Yes, we live in a fallen world and we're born into sin. But the good news is that the other part of the equation is Jesus came to wipe away those sins. He already died for our sins. And the question is, will we come to him at this point? Seekers everywhere, such as the Ethiopian eunuch, which we covered prior, and Cornelius want to know God deeper than their religious upbringing. A lot of the Romans at the time, you have to understand, when the Romans took over, okay, and they uh, had control over the Jewish area, there was a lot of mingling between the Romans, who were polytheists, they had many gods, and the Jewish people. A lot of the Romans, as the Greeks, were just fed up with all the different gods. You know, a god for this, a god for that, i got to sacrifice this. And it was confusing after a while, and, and they didn't really believe it anymore. And a lot of the Romans actually converted and became Jews. They became proselytes, right? But at some point in time, they, they, again, they got tired and they were really seeking after the true God. And God allowed himself to be found by them. So my question to you is, where are you in relationship to your creator? I mean, my guess is that the large majority of everybody uh, sitting here today is saved. But I don't know your hearts. If you don't know the Lord, do you want to know him? Do you see how easy it is in the scripture to become a child of God? Right? He, he made it so the person with the... You know, he, he made the playing field even. So you have a rich person and a poor person. Poor person can get, still get saved. All he has to do is believe, repent and believe. You have a person of very high education and a, a person of very low education. Jesus made the gospel message so simple that anybody can find their creator if they want to. And we'll give you that opportunity at the end of service. Verse 9. It says, The next day as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened up and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord. For I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed you must not call common. This was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision 
uh, what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he who you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and hear words from you. So we see that this is the second half of the equation. Peter's vision. It was a great sheet, a great sheet with all kinds, clean and unclean animals on it, and it was let down. And the voice said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Or basically, whatever you want to eat that's on that sheet, go ahead, you can eat it. What did the vision mean? Well, number one, the, self, the text is self-exegeted. In verse 28, which we're going to get to, it explains what actually happened, right? And it was God's way to show Peter that his entire creation is clean. God regards all men and women alike. Not only did the Jews at that time regard certain food as unclean, Leviticus 11 was their dietary restrictions that the Lord gave them, but taken to the extreme, they looked at Gentiles as unclean. Anybody who wasn't Jewish was looked at as uh, unclean, as a person. And that's not the way it was supposed to be, because in the law, in the Jewish law, there was a provision for loving your neighbor, okay, somebody who wasn't Jewish. There was a provision for protections of your neighbors if they came to sojourn with you. There were provisions, uh, all types of provisions for your neighbor. That's why Jesus had to do a parable on the Good Samaritan, because they were totally off. You know, a man fell among thieves. He was beat up. He was robbed. He was left for dead. And a priest, a Levite, two separate occasions, these holy men, right, came by. They looked at him, and they kept going. We don't, we don't see anything. And then a, a Samaritan, somebody who was loathed by the Jews at the time, looked at the man and he had compassion on him and he bandaged him up and he, he put him on his donkey and he brought him to the inn and he took care of him, right? And this person, again, a Samaritan was a loathed person. But Jesus had to show them, he said, who is your neighbor? Who is the man's neighbor? The religious men? They walked right by him. No, it was the loathed Samaritan that showed him compassion. That was their neighbor. Verse 15 it says, what God has cleansed, you must not call common, meaning that the cross opened the door to everyone. And this had to be there. This vision had to go to Peter because he wouldn't have stepped foot in the Gentiles' home without, uh, without this information being given to him. This was a, a precursor to Peter accepting Cornelius. The second point here is that this was at the same time or contemporaneous to the temporal application of the abolition of the dietary laws. In other words, there was the Levitical dietary laws that we covered in, Le in uh, Leviticus 7. And they served a purpose, and they were for a season under the age of the law. But in the age of grace, the crucifixion's fulfillment changed a lot of how these laws were observed. Now, so my point is that people say, okay, the, t the text says that what this vision means is that Peter... Uh, should not call any man unclean. Okay, the, the division is broken down. But I also believe that it was also a way for him to not be able to be under the Levit Levitical laws anymore. And let me explain why I feel that way. The first reason is throughout the New Testament, 
the Apostle Paul denounced the Judaizers. See, in those days, if you were Jewish, right, the Bible or God wanted his people to be a light to the Gentiles. That's why he put them smack dab in the middle of the pagan world, right? So if you were a polytheist or you were a pagan, to know the true God, you pretty much became Jewish because they were the only ones who believed in the monotheism, the only true God. What happened was when uh, now the same Gentiles want to become Christians, the Judaizers said, well, you can't just accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You kind of have to be Jewish first and then come to Christianity. So, you know, you get that, ritual, that, that, that ritualistic part of it coming in again. So we go from, instead of uh, Gentile to Christian, has to go from Gentile to Jew and then to Christian. But that's not the way God had set it up. So Paul was constantly arguing with the Judaizers and denouncing them for their false doctrine. And one of the things they tried to do was to make the Gentiles follow the Levit- Levitical laws, okay, which they didn't have to. Second point on that is in Acts 15, there's a official church dogma, which we're going to get to in the 15th chapter, on the Gentiles becoming Christians. Now, the only thing that the apostles got together and said that the Gentiles had to do to follow these, these, these Old Testament laws was they had to abstain from blood and they had to abstain from animals that were strangled. What that means is if uh, the way they, the Gentiles killed the animals, they would strangle them to cut off their circulation and they would die, but the blood would still be in the circulatory system. What the Jews did to make it kosher was they would, it was very humane, very painless. They would slit the animal uh, into a major, uh, you know, blood vessel and the animal would bleed out and the animal would die, but all the blood would be drained. So these two points, abstaining from blood and abstaining from strangled animals, really had to do with blood. And that's it. That was the only dietary laws that they made the Gentiles follow. The third thing is the Gentile diet was a hard barrier, okay? It was a hard barrier that prevented fellowship between Jews associating with them. So you see uh, a a sort of abrogation of that that diet wholesale. Two interesting points. Peter gets berated in Acts chapter 11, which we're going to come to. He gets berated for eating with the Gentiles. And then he gets berated in Galatians 2 for for not eating with the Gentiles. And we're going to cover that also. But by loosening the dietary restrictions, it made it easier for that fellowship or the koinonia between the Jews and the Gentiles. So you see the walls coming down. Verse 9, Peter goes to the housetop to pray. This housetop experience was a precursor to God speaking to Peter and instructing Peter. Explain the housetops. For those, I mean, I think I've, I've only lived in the United States, but I look around and because we have snow, everybody's house is pitched. You know, it's, it comes to a point and it's for structural reasons because if you have a flat roof, the snow will cause a caving in in the center, right? In Israel, um, I don't know what it looks like today, but especially in those days, they, most of the houses had flat roofs because they didn't have to worry about snow. But the housetops also served as a place for water collection because a lot of these villages don't have plumbing. And um, it was also a, a place to recline. You could go up there for some peace and quiet, kind of go up on the roof, right, like that song. So Peter goes up there to pray, probably because it's quiet and he's alone with the Lord. And he has this experience from God. So I would say this. If we're wondering why God's not speaking to us, sometimes we need to have those housetop experiences. Sometimes with all the the hustle and bustle and the noise and uh, with work and the cell phone and everything going on, that we don't really have that pure communication with God, that pure communion. 
And if you're wondering why God's not speaking to you, maybe it's time to go on the housetop between you and the Lord. Just, be, just have some alone time with him. I've said this before. In my street, it's kind of rural. So uh, when I just need to go out and I pray, I just start walking down the road. And I kind of talk to God like I'm talking to you with my hands and all. I'm sure my neighbors look at me and wonder if I'm crazy or not, but they know I'm a pastor. It's probably why they don't come to church. They say, he talks to himself. But it's good just to, you know, and I get into it. I'm starting to talk to the Lord, and I'm, I'm like I'm talking to you, right? It's, it's my relationship with God, and we just have to have those alone times with God. Uh, Wednesday night, uh, one of our elders, Tayo, had an extended time of prayer, and uh, it was just beautiful. You know, I encourage my elders, especially on Wednesday nights, to just have that, that extended time of prayer. Just be led by the Spirit. You know, don't worry about time constraints. Just pray and, and have, you know, encourage other people to pray also. Because Hebrews 4.16 says that we can come before the throne room of God at any time if we need, uh, you know, some grace and some mercy. You know, a time to just come before God. Imagine that. In the old days, if you came into the presence of the king, the monarch, and you weren't invited, including the king's wife, as the book of Esther, I believe, you know, she had to go in and, and uh, meet with her husband, who was the king. And the concern was, uh, without being announced, he, she could be killed for that. And it's interesting because when you understand the way things happen in the ancient times and you read the Bible, it comes more to life. So we can come in the presence of the monarch, the great king, the creator of all the universe at any time. And, you know, not arrogantly, but lovingly as a child to the father and talk to him and, and petition him. So we should take advantage of that. Verse 14. Peter's response Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says, okay, Lord, whatever you say. Okay, you didn't read it properly. He says, not so, Lord. Now, isn't that an oxymoron? Think about it. Absolutely not, master of the universe. <laughs> you are my Lord, but I'm not listening to you. That, that's, that phrase is an oxymoron. So I'm confused here. He sees this fantastic vision from the Lord with instruction, and he says, uh, no, I'm not going to do it. It has to be told three times. Now, in Italian, we have words for that. One is malatesta, and the other one is stunad, right? I hope I didn't just say something bad, but I don't think I did. <laughs> the interesting here, uh, thing here is that Cornelius was a Gentile. He didn't know the Lord. Cornelius did what he was told, but Peter resisted, right? You see the point? Sometimes God's people, we can become weird, you know, where other people are seeking, and they just have that desire for the Lord. And we kind of take it for granted. So you see the difference in the two of them. Again, as Christians, we know better, right? We know we would never say, not so, Lord. Well, don't be so sure. We Christians disobey God in the form of his word and the Holy Spirit sometimes if it's not convenient to our lifestyle. I've seen it with a lot of things. Marriage. You know, you're talking to a young couple, and maybe the one is really on fire for the Lord, and the other one just doesn't really have the walk, but somehow they fell in love and they want to get married. And you talk to them about being unequally yoked. You know, if you're not together in your devotion for the Lord, there's going to be problems. Unequally yoked goes out the window. He's so dreamy. I'm in love, right? Or even divorce. Uh, you know, you wanted him. Now you keep him. <laughs> well, no, I, I don't want him anymore. I'd like to go to the Hillel school of if he, you know, looks at me the wrong way, I can divorce him, right? Or she. Uh, even kids with, with discipline. You know, the Bible says two particular proverbs. One says, he who spares the rod hates his son. And the other one says that the rod of, of correction will drive foolishness far from the child. 
but people still refuse to discipline their children. It's almost as if they're saying, not so, Lord. Dr. Spock told me I should be my kid's friend. I shouldn't discipline him, right? But what does the Bible say? Okay, because we, we know better than God. Not so, Lord. Um, again, I, I'm, I'm bring up our elder Tayo again. He has his, uh, his children, his boys are just so well-behaved. They're such wonderful kids. And his oldest son, Tayo, uh, was at my house some time ago. And my neighbor, who's 71, I um, hope he doesn't hear this. I just said his age. But he, uh, he had the occasion to hang out with uh, Tayo's son, Tayo. And they spent some time together. And what a witness that boy was to my neighbor. My neighbor came to me afterwards. He goes, I've never seen a child, you know, he's a, a young teen. I've never seen a child so well behaved. You know, he actually was waiting for when they're going to come back so he could hang out with Tayo again, right? But he just was such an example to my neighbor. And again, it was through uh, his parents' diligent uh, disciplining of their children. Gossip, lying, well, that's in the top ten of the Ten Commandments, but, you know, if it's not convenient to us, sometimes we say, not so, Lord, and we're a little bit loose with our lips. The appearance of evil, uh, and the list goes on. Sometimes we say we're obedient, but our actions say something else, not so, Lord. Verse 19 and 20, I want to read that again. It says, while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. So the Spirit is still working on Peter while he's pondering the vision. Doubting. The word in the Greek indicates um, a thinking, don't doubt or don't think through and through, in and out. That's what that word uh, signifies in the original language. So basically, Peter, just go with what God says. You're thinking too much. There was a movie that I saw, uh, The Last Samurai. I don't think it was very popular. I don't think a lot of people actually saw it, but it was really a good movie. And the main character who played the Westerner, who got captured by the Japanese samurai, now he's a Westerner, a military man, he gets captured, and they don't kill him. And he starts to learn their ways. And one of the things he starts to learn how to do is instead of using a firearm, he uses a, a samurai sword. So, of course, before they use real swords, they use the, the wooden ones, right? And he goes up against one of the better samurais in the village, and he keeps getting knocked down. I mean, the guy's giving him a pounding. So after the second time, he gets beat pretty good. Uh, I guess, uh, for lack of a better word, his coach, another samurai, comes up to him, and he says, he points to his head. He goes, you think you're, you're using too much of this. And then he points to his heart, and he says, you're not using enough of this. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that our four-chamber uh, you know, cardiac muscle can actually think? No. But what it means is sometimes we think too much. We intellectualize too much. And when we're dealing with God, you know, God works outside the box. If you're going to be inside the box and you're just going to just machine everything in your head, it's not going to work. So Peter, don't doubt, don't resist. Drop your guard, Peter. Bring the walls down. Bring your prejudices down. And for us, in order to truly follow God, we have to drop our preconceived notions our prejudices, and be open to what God's plan is in our life, not to think so much. One of the most grievous sins to God is disbelieving him. Why didn't the children of Israel make it into the promised land? Because they doubted God. They saw the size of the, the uh, inhabitants in Canaan, and they're like, no way we can take these guys. They're big. They doubted God. They didn't believe him. And that's why they couldn't make it into the promised land. That's it, very offensive to God. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is rejection 
or resisting or doubting what Jesus did on the cross to the point where it's, there's no hope for you. Similar to Ananias' instruction, though, God said to him, Arise and go, doubting nothing. Where do we fit in in that? I mean, we live in an, an age where, especially in this area of the world, it's all about education. Education, education, education. You think, you're, you know, your baby's not even born yet, and you're thinking about paying for their college fund, right? It's all about education. And we could get to the point where we intellectualize things so much that we don't leave room for God. So this morning, I would ask you, what is it in your life that God's trying to do in you? What is it in your life that God can do for you? What is it in your life that because of your doubting and because of your intellectualizing, you're not allowing him to work in your life? Something to think about this morning. 23. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent me? And Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon at Tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. This is the confirmation. Both men now see the power of God and how he brought them together. This is how the vision works, confirmation. This part was similar to, remember, a lot of repetitive repetition in, in the book of Acts, which is good, because when the Bible repeats something, it's something to take notice of. If you remember with Saul and Ananias, there was the same type of confirmation. God was working on both ends. He gave confirmation on both sides. But Peter, for lack of a better term, well, Acts 11:12 says that the men that Peter brought was numbered six men. So Peter brings six men with him. So he kind of brings his posse, if you will, right? It shows the humanity of Peter. Peter knows he's going to get heat for this meeting with this Gentile, especially a Roman soldier coming into his house. He knows he's going to get heat in, in, in his human side. So he brings witnesses to say, look, you saw the Holy Spirit too, didn't you? you know, so when I go before the council, you, know, you can help back me up here a little bit because you saw it too. But verse 24, it was interesting because Cornelius brings relatives and friends. And we don't know how many, how many people were in his home, how many friends did he bring. But we see that Cornelius is quite the evangelist. And this is a blessing to see new believers on fire for God. I remember uh, years ago, many years ago, when uh, my wife and my sister and I got saved at Calvary Old Bridge, they had this kind of an outreach or some type of thing. It, it's like the club, like the racquetball club. And uh, it just, my wife and my sister went, and they just were so excited about the Lord. They were asking people questions, and they were talking about the Lord and the Bible. And they actually developed a, a following around them where just, they just were 
wanted to listen to them because their excitement and zeal was so great for the Lord. It's like that fire that a new believer has, you know, and you want everybody to get saved. You want to bring your families, your, fr- your friends, and uh, unfortunately, you don't get a great response from everybody, but it's okay, you know, pray for them. And it's also just as awesome to see older believers in the Lord maintain that fire, not to become crusty or comfortable, but, you know, 15, 20, 30 years, just to have that same fire for the Lord as you had on the first day that you, you got to know him, right, that you received him. Verse 25. Here's a situation where Peter comes in, Cornelius sees him, and he falls down at his feet, at Peter's feet, and worships him. I mean, you talk about your awkward moments. <laughs> Peter's like, get up, I'm a man too, right? Cornelius doesn't know any better, and that's why he needs guidance. Sort of like, remember the Ethiopian eunuch, another uh, repeat. He had Philip, you know, the spirit had Philip come alongside of him and say, you know what you're reading? He goes, no, not unless a man shows me. So uh, Philip came up and he, and he taught him. He taught him about the gospel. And you see that that's kind of happening here with Peter and Cornelius. And that's why we go verse by verse here. And I don't criticize, uh, well, I guess I do. A church that doesn't use the Bible at all, I have criticism for. Uh, and the Bible does too. But, and nobody, people don't have to do it the way we do it, but it's, the whole verse by verse thing is very important. I was really drawn to the Calvary style because you really get to know the Bible. And I'm teaching you verse by verse so you can become a Peter to a Cornelius. You know, a church is not supposed to be a primarily a social club because so many in the world haven't heard the gospel and they need a Philip. They need a Peter. They need you to come alongside of them, right? Because all they hear from the media is garbage. If, you, if you're going to get your spirituality and your understanding of the Bible from the Discovery Channel, you're going to be very confused and you're, you're pretty much getting fed junk food. And you know what happens if you eat too much junk food, right? When we had the men's group on Saturday, uh, yesterday morning, I just remember talking to the guys about, uh, you know, how much time they put in with the Lord. Out of all the things that you do, is the Lord's category, is that the highest? Reading the word, praying, just spending time with the Lord. Is that category the greatest category? Because one day, guys, I said to them, the Lord's going to call on you to do something. You know, maybe not to be a street evangelist. That's really a gift. Maybe not to be a theologian, but maybe to be there at the right time when a Cornelius is put in your path and you can speak to them about what the Lord has done in your life and what you know of the scripture. Two incidental points to point out on this. Number one, good people and good angels in the scripture always refused worship. Only the evil ones received it. Worship is only authorized for God. What Peter did here, I saw uh, in Revelation, I saw, I read, uh, a portion of scripture where the angel is showing John all these visions, right? The culmination of time and just am- amazing things. You, if you've read the book of Revelation, imagine seeing that real. I mean, you get chills when you read it. And John gets carried away. The apostle John gets carried away by seeing all this. And he, he actually, in a moment, he, like, like Cornelius, he falls down at the feet of the angel. And the angel immediately says, get up. You know, get up. I'm a fellow servant like you. Don't give me worship. He's like, oh, God's not looking. This isn't good. So get up. So you see the same thing happening here. And what's interesting is that if you look at Jesus's ministry, he was the only man who wasn't evil, who accepted worship. People would fall at Jesus's feet and he would allow, allow them to worship him. So signifying he was evil, he was either bad or he was divine. And we know that he was divine. He was God. 
The other thing is over the centuries, men have accepted worship and undue honors. Uh, I think some things that men fall victim to is they can be ego-driven. If a man is good at what he does and somebody pumps him up enough about what he does, uh, he gets a big head. Men are ego-driven. And unfortunately, people who supposedly represent God have had this happen to them. I think about the procedure of prostrating yourself or getting down on your knees and your hands and kissing the ring, which was a common protocol to popes and bishops. Again, many, many make Peter out to be the first pope, but he behaved as anything but a pope. Peter didn't say, kiss the ring or stay there. He said, I am, you know, I'm just a man. You better get up. I don't deserve the worship. So that's an important thing to, uh, to note. Verse 31. So you see that uh, he says that, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your arms, are, your arms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. And this is where he's lodging. So you see that God is behind this meeting. Did you ever have a situation where God is working on you and another person at the same time and he confirms the, the vision to both of you? I think about sometimes with me and my wife and the Lord is maybe it's something she brought up to me and maybe I'm against it at first and, you know, I'll, I'll pray about it. What's so funny about that? It happens in marriage, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm the only one. But... Uh, you know, time goes by and I pray about it and the Lord really works on me. and He shows me that, you know what, that is a good idea. So, you know, my, my wife will maybe bring it up again and she's, as soon as she opens her mouth, I'm like, okay, I agree. And it's almost like she didn't hear me and she keeps going to try to sell me. I'm like, slow down. I agree with you. She's like, oh, <laughs> you know, the Lord's already been working on me. You didn't even have to say anything. He just did it. Uh, even in ministry, when I counsel with other ministry leaders or, or pastors, I say, let's both be in prayer and see what the Lord shows us. And I've changed my mind before based on what the Lord has shown me. You know, state your case. Uh, let, me, let me take it to the Lord. Let me pray about it and see what the Lord shows us. But even better and the most amazing thing that happens is what you see here. And it happens to us. I'm sure every one of you, of you has experienced it. Where the Lord is working on you and the Lord is working on another person and you guys don't talk about it. And then you come together and you're just agreement about what the Lord has shown both of you individually. Now, that's pretty amazing, and that's what you see what's happening here. And verse 33, the moment of truth. Cornelius says, so I sent, you, I sent you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things God commanded you by God. This is the moment of truth where Cornelius says, Peter, you have the floor. What does God say? What an opportunity that is. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us that, he says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. The word defense in Greek is apologian, which is a courtroom-style testimony. So a, a well-thought-out, well-put-together uh, you know, testimony. And sometimes the Lord is going to call us to do that with meekness and fear. Be humble. Be respectful when you do it, not be arrogant. Uh, and I'm sure we've seen situations where people have beat, pe beat people over the head with the gospel, and that usually happens with new believers. It happened with me. And you just got to learn to relax a little bit and let the Holy Spirit work through you and not try to run ahead of him. But God may call on us for such a time as this. And some people say, well, that's scary, Joe. I mean, you're the pastor. <laughs> you should be doing that. I'm afraid to do something like that. 
I think sometimes people think that I was born the pastor. You know, I didn't come out of my mother's womb preaching the gospel, right? It, the Lord worked on me. And as a new Christian, I knew nothing. My, my first few sermons were horrible. Um, you know, and I'm saying that. But God grows us into the role that he has for us. The only thing in my favor was that I wanted to be available to the Lord. And that's all he needed. And God said, that's what I need right there. You know what, Lord, I, I don't come to you with any great skills. I don't come to you with any great experience. Um, no bloodline of pastors in my family. But, Lord, I just want to be available to you. And that's what he can use for us to glorify God. And that's all that we need. Before we close, uh, I don't want to rush through this. There's, there's a lot to this. We'll finish up chapter uh, 10 the next time. But are we available and are we ready for the task that the Lord has us? And I think that's really the crux of this, right? Peter, you know, wasn't sure right away and uh, he, he hesitated about the vision that he saw. But you know what? Peter was a good guy. He was available. He had his moments just like we do. And it just shows Peter's humanity. But the question is, when we're called upon, uh, what will we do? The Bible tells us in Hebrews 9.27 that it says that it is appointed for us to die once and then the judgment. So there's no do-overs here. And the worst thing that we want in our lives is to, when we're in eternity, realize that our lives were really here to glorify God. And what did we do to glorify God? I'll give you an example of, of maybe regrets. And we've all had regrets in our lives. And this is certainly something we don't want to regret. When I was, oh, many years ago, when I was in the police academy, uh, there was certain things that you could do. It was very competitive. You could, you know, you could shoot and sharpshooter award. Uh, you, could, you could get a, 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 an award and bring it back to your department. It was like a prestige thing. You could get an uh, academic award for doing well in the classroom. You could get a physical fitness award for doing well physically. And people would compete to see how many awards they could take back to their police department. I was in a police academy, and I just wanted to get out of there. I mean, I hated being there. I just wanted to be out on the road. But I was competitive, but not terribly competitive. I could have done a better job. And I remember that the, the captain at the time, when the awards were given out, he said to me, you missed the academic award by half a point. If I would have tried a little harder, I would have got that. I missed the sharpshooter award by two bullets, you know, two bullets outside of the silhouette. And I missed the uh, physical fitness award by uh, a few points also. So do you know what I brought back to my department in honor? Goose egg. <laughs> Nothing. But if I would have tried a little harder, maybe I could have taken something back. Now listen, I don't lose sleep over it 16 years later. I really don't care. But the point is, for a while there, it bothered me. I'm like, now if I could have just done this over, those of you in the military, those of you in something competitive, those of you at a, a project at work, well now why wouldn't, let's step back, look at eternal things. Why wouldn't we take that same attitude with our lives? What, what, what's so important and precious to us this side of eternity that we could give to glorify God? It's our lives. What is it about our lives? What is it about the gifts that God has given us? Are we wasting them with temporal things that have no eternal consequences? Or will we use our lives to glorify God? So I think that this point in Scripture really hammers that home. So before we leave today, I just would pray that we would... Again, maybe on the ride home, think about that message. Let's pray. What is it about?